episode 32 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast that brings you interviews with journalists around the world. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with more than eight years' experience in Brazil and China. I have to admit that it was a close call on getting this episode ready in time after a busy couple of weeks, but we made it. This week, I bring you an interview with Ryan Lenora Brown, the Christian Science Monitor's Africa correspondent based in Johannesburg. You may recall that in episode 16, I spoke to Lindsay Schutel, who is also based in Joburg. I had been meaning to interview Ryan, who helped me get in touch with Lindsay for a while, but I try to space out my interviews with people based in the same location. Ryan's story is very different from Lindsay's, though, and I think it will give another perspective on South Africa. That said, we do go off script to return to some similar themes as the interview with Lindsay, discussing issues of race and nationality when it comes to foreign correspondence. As in, should white, non-Africans, or non-South Americans be the main people covering these or other places? Those conversations are starting to take place in the media, but have yet to be fully reckoned with. We do also name drop Hélène Franchineau from episode 13, in case you're not a podcast completist and are wondering who we're talking about. As for the parts of the interview where I do stick to the script, as in those questions I ask just about everyone, there's a lot of fascinating stuff in there. Her story on how this 56-mile ultramarathon became a phenomenon in South Africa that 20,000 people, mostly not serious runners, take part in, is particularly wild. Equally interesting is the story about how Ebola prevention efforts had to adapt to local culture in order to be taken seriously. And a bizarre story that got away about an entire Eritrean soccer team that defected. Ryan is an act for finding stories that push back against the classic, or what I should really say is stereotypical, stories of African strife or backwardness. There's a lot to like in this one, so without further ado, here's my conversation with Ryan Lenora Brown of the Christian Science Monitor in South Africa. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Ah, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And then to warm up a little bit, if you could set the scene for us, just where you are, what time is it, and tell us a little bit about what the last week of work has been like for you. Yeah, sure. So I'm in Johannesburg, South Africa. Um, I'm in my house, in my home office, which is where I've worked since before COVID times. Um, although the difference now, of course, is I haven't seen much outside these four walls in the past sort of four or five months. I stay in a house with my partner and three dogs in a suburb near downtown Joburg. So that's where I am. It's about 4.15 in the afternoon now. It's late winter here, which if you're lucky enough to live in Johannesburg, means it's in the low 20s Celsius, mid 70s Fahrenheit during the day, and then gets a little chilly at night. But that is to say, very, very pleasant. And I'm taking this current week off from work because I was sort of probably like many of us hoarding my leave, kind of hoping there would be a break in the pandemic where it felt like safe and fun to be able to travel a little or go somewhere and use those days. And I finally acknowledged that that wasn't going to happen. So I'm just taking a little staycation at my house. But I'm actually working a bit this week on a freelance story, which I don't often do for the NPR blog Goats and Soda, about the South African president's sign language interpreters who have become these sort of national treasures during our COVID lockdown. They're always in the corner of the screen when the president makes an address about the pandemic. For hearing people, they hold a mirror to what we all feel about 
what's been going on. The disappointment and sadness and anger and incredulity on their faces mirrors what all of us are feeling. And so they become the subject of like memes and viral videos. And then, of course, at the same time, that's all drawn attention to South African Sign Language and its quest to be named the 12th official language in South Africa. So I'm just doing a little freelance piece about them. And so that's my mini work project at the moment while I'm on vacation. Cool. Yeah, that sounds like a fun story. In Brazil here, too, the sign language interpreters are a big thing because there's very strict requirements that every official giving a speech needs to have one. And so there's always periodically memes come out of the sign language interpreters making faces when leaders are saying particular things or stuff like that. And actually, the president's wife, the first lady, is a sign language interpreter by trade. So she oh, really? like came in and all her friends now have the hookup uh, <laughs> with the presidency to translate. So that's interesting. Nepotism um, yeah, in the sign language interpreting world. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, otherwise with work and coronavirus, have things been hectic or has it been a lot of staying inside and working the phones or how has it been for you these past four months? Yeah, I mean, I suppose I'm in quite a lucky position in that I don't write for a breaking news outlet or a paper that considers itself like a paper of record where we really need to cover all the important news on the ground. So I've been given a lot of leeway and flexibility in what to cover in this time. And also a slightly more cynical take is that there's just been people in the United States and Europe have been so consumed with the COVID-19 news there but they actually don't care all that much about what's happening with regards to the pandemic in Africa and in other parts of the world, which has also sort of given me a long leash to write what I'm interested in. And then another wrinkle to this story is I'm type 1 diabetic, so I'm at higher risk. So I've been, as much as I can, avoiding doing much reporting out in the world. So it's been a lot of working the phones, trying to find interesting surprise and delight stories that are news adjacent, but maybe just something a little different than all this never-ending march of death and sickness statistics and all of that. So things like people running marathons in their living room during lockdown, or people adopting pets during lockdown, or people doing virtual tours of things. So I've been sort of leaning a little towards that genre of story, and those have been pretty reportable over the phone. So it hasn't been too hectic, which has been good, because it would be hard to manage a really hectic time at work on top of everything else. What was the story you said you drove three hours for? So that's actually the most recent story and probably the biggest story I've worked on since the pandemic started. It was about the first 99 days of lockdown in South Africa. Lockdown started at the end of March, so that would have been in the beginning of July. And the framing of it was I followed four South Africans through day 99, which was July 3rd. And the four South Africans I chose, one was a corner store owner in a township because I had just gotten the sense that people like that are really pillars of their community and have a really good read on the vibe, the mood in the neighborhood because they interact with so many people. So anyway, so one of them was that guy. One was a woman who was a informal worker, a housekeeper who had lost most of her work because of the pandemic. One was the guy who's in charge of the government response to the pandemic. And then one was a nurse and the nurse lived in a city about three hours from where I live. So I went to see her in person on that day, actually. That was by a long shot the farthest I've gotten from my house in the past four months, which is quite unusual for me. Cool. Sounds like a good story. 
I guess then, yeah, let's get into more of the interview proper. If we could start with where were you born? Tell us a little bit about what growing up was like and maybe your early schooling years and if you started to show any interest in journalism early on. So I grew up in Denver, Colorado in the U.S., from the time I was very young, was really interested in writing, although in fiction writing. I wrote a lot of short stories. I got to middle school, high school. I went to a school for the arts. I was in a creative writing program. And then running parallel to that, I was also an incredibly shy kid, just really timid and afraid to talk to people, introduce myself to new people, and so on. And I mentioned those two salient facts because when I got to university then, I went to Duke University in North Carolina, I just sort of on a whim decided to try the student paper. And I realized that journalism is a really good way as a very shy person to have an excuse to approach people. I mean, to this day, I still find it hard to just go up to a stranger at a party and talk to them. But I find it now completely easy to go up to a stranger on the street and say, hi, my name's Ryan. I'm a journalist working for an American newspaper called the Christian Science Monitor. And I was just wondering if I could ask you a couple questions about XYZ. And so I found that to just be a really useful professional excuse to have to talk to the kinds of people I had always been too shy to talk to in any other context. And then, of course, obviously, like marrying that with storytelling, and it was just a sort of new and different way to tell stories. So I think that the sort of seeds of that were planted when I was a kid, although I didn't really know it at the time. I'm exactly the same. I was a very shy kid. And yeah, there's something about having a mission that makes it easier to talk to people. And I mean, I wouldn't say I'm shy now anymore, but like you said, half these events I attend as a journalist, say I was just attending whatever reception as a private citizen, I probably wouldn't go up and talk to people <laughs> like, yeah. just left to my own devices. It's like amazing to me how many of us do come from this background of having been shy or timid or afraid to talk to people, because I think I have the sense or the stereotype of journalists being sort of brash and just kind of busting in and asking all these questions and stuff. But actually, I think for quite a lot of us, it's been that professional excuse to talk to people in a way that would be hard otherwise or was hard otherwise. Yeah. So what did you study in college? Were you an English major or something like that, if you were more interested in fiction? I was a history major. I guess that was another strand of storytelling that I found really interesting, history and how history is constructed and told and history as a story, right? Like what's the path that we cut through the forest that is the past and what narratives we find and what do they mean? So I studied history with a particular interest in African history. And then I wrote quite obsessively, as I said, I sort of fell into it, but for the student paper, which now when I tell non-Americans about this, they're like flabbergasted that at a lot of American universities, there is a daily newspaper put out by students. It's like wild when you think about it, actually, because these are people who essentially would have no way to have almost any journalistic experience who are creating the paper of record for not insignificantly sized community of people, of a university community. And I think I just learned all the sort of basics of journalism there. And I can remember going back to this thing about being really shy. I remember the first time that I had to do a story where I needed to call somebody and ask for an interview, I had to write out a script for myself. And then literally, when the guy picked up the phone, read it, because I was just shaking, so nervous to you know, <laughs> speak to a person I didn't know. But I mean, that was, that was the way I learned all the basics of journalism, just from doing it, from making mistakes, and from just putting in time there. So I think that's probably not an uncommon one, that that was a very 
formative experience to me, probably, I would say on par with what you probably learn at a journalism school, I suppose, in a slightly different form. Yeah, I would agree. I didn't study journalism except for a couple classes, but my student newspaper was where I learned most of it. And from that, I mean, was it just something you liked to do or did you come out of college thinking, I want to be a journalist based on that? I came out of college thinking I probably want to be a journalist, but I thought, okay, there's no rush. I'd like to also spend some time overseas. I didn't feel like I needed to rush into a career. I'll also say I was very lucky. I got a scholarship to college and so I didn't have any loans that needed immediate paying back. So in my senior year of college, I applied to a Fulbright fellowship, which is a fellowship from the U.S. State Department to go and do research in a country of your choosing around the world. And it is a really, really wild and weird scholarship because you have to put this incredible amount of effort into crafting a project that you can spend a year working on in this country that you're proposing going to and show that you're qualified to do it. And I came up with this idea to write a biography of this apartheid-era South African journalist who had had this very short but incredible career in South Africa and then had been forced into exile in the U.S. and killed himself in his 20s. I had set up this whole project that I wanted to do, and then I got the scholarship. And basically what happens is they buy you a plane ticket to South Africa. They come pick you up at the airport, drop you off at an address of your choosing. And then, like, that's it. Then, like, pretty much then nobody for the rest of the year asks, how's the project going? Did you finish it? Can you show what your progress is on it? So you just dropped into the deep end to do what you want. Anyway, so after I finished college in 2011, I flew to Johannesburg and started working on this project that I had no idea how to do. Bought this crappy old 1987 Toyota Corolla that barely ran, that seemed like every time I pulled it out of its parking spot, had a different puddle of liquid that had come out of it in the night. I would just drive it around the city, basically interviewing all these old journalists who had been the friends and colleagues of this guy that I was writing about. So there was a sort of journalism adjacent year. It was a year where I really learned a lot about the craft of journalism, but while doing something that was not itself strictly journalistic. I spent a year doing that, which was really, really interesting and fun. And as I say, like just open-ended and I had this incredible freedom to just travel and read and write. And then at the end of it, I came back to the States and I decided, okay, yeah, I'm really inspired by what I've learned about journalism. I would like to be a journalist. And so I just started applying to every entry-level journalism position or internship that I could find anywhere. I think I once counted up that I applied to like 55, 56 things and heard back from almost no one because... What qualifications did I have besides this illustrious career at my student newspaper? But the two places that I heard back from were the Christian Science Monitor in Boston offered me an internship on their international news desk. And then the newspaper in Casper, Wyoming offered me a job as a features reporter. So that was really like the first fork in the road for my journalism career. And I still think back to it and think, I wonder what would have happened if I had taken that job as the features reporter in Casper, Wyoming. But at the time, I just saw the Monitor had this legacy. It was a much smaller paper than it had been 10 or 20 years ago, but had the legacy brand. There were a lot of people there who had worked as foreign correspondents. And I was thinking, having lived in South Africa, that might be something that I might be interested in doing. would love to learn from those people. So I thought, okay, I'll give it a shot. I moved to Boston and I started this internship at the Christian Science Monitor, where after a zigzagging and winding road, I now again work. And when you went to South Africa for the Fulbright, had you 
been to South Africa before? Had you been to Africa before? Or where did that interest come from? I had this long-term interest in South Africa since I was a kid. And I think it's because South Africa holds a mirror to the United States in so many ways and the ways in which it's wrestled with being a very diverse multicultural society, overcoming legacies of racism and segregation. I sort of saw a lot of similarities there and just found the history really interesting and striking. So all the way back since I was a kid, I had been really interested in like Nelson Mandela and the anti-apartheid movement and things like that. And then I ended up spending a summer when I was in college in South Africa in a city called Durban. And then I spent another semester in college studying abroad in Dakar, Senegal. So by that time, I had a little bit of experience in Africa and developing a definite interest in the region. And I think the other thing that struck me about South Africa, just narratively, was that it's really, really interesting. If you come from a country like the United States, that's fairly set in its ways. Every election, one of two parties wins. The sort of institutions are the same institutions that have been there for a long time. When you walk into a country like South Africa, that is literally a brand new country. The country itself is only a generation old, and you're sitting in a bar with your friends and your friends are talking about what their country is going to look like in five or 10 years and how it might be very different than it is now. Just the sort of sense of movement and dynamism around that really was striking to me. It was interesting on a personal level. It was an interesting place to be. And it was also interesting narratively. I sense there's a lot of really cool stories to tell about a country like that. It seems like a great place to be a reporter. I guess to get back to the Christian Science Monitor in Boston, how long were you there for? And did you get a job with them after that? Or what happens next? I moved to Boston, I guess this was the beginning of 2013 to take this internship on the National News Desk. And I ended up staying there about nine months. And in that time, I had my first sort of crisis of faith about whether I really wanted to be a journalist. I really wanted to be in journalism. And it's really no shade at all on the monitor. But at that time, they, like many places, were trying to figure out how do you make money from having a news website? And one of the things that they were trying was basically to rewrite wire stories as little blog entries and then try to just like slightly repackage them on their site so people would be tricked into clicking on those off of Google News instead of going to the original Mm -hmm. Reuters or AP or Bloomberg sites, right? And so that was the job that was assigned to the interns, the entry-level writing work that you did there, along with writing a lot of headlines and things like that and trying to write headlines in a way, again, that might make the story sound a bit flashier or sexier than it was. So it was interesting. It was interesting to see how that sausage was made. But after some months of that, I started to think like, maybe journalism is not what I thought it was, or maybe it takes so long to get to the parts of journalism that are interesting. I would sometimes work a bit with the foreign reporters at the monitor. And I just wonder, like, I feel like what I'm doing is so far from what they're doing. And the path to get there seems really long, and I can't quite see it. So I thought, maybe maybe I actually don't want to be a journalist. And so in the midst of this, I had had this friend who did a master's in African studies at Oxford and had gotten a scholarship to do it, and he had really enjoyed it. And so I thought, well, let me try that. That might be a way to 
step back, learn a bit more about this region that's always interested me, dabble a bit and see if maybe academia is something that might interest me. Do I want to maybe be a historian? You know, I'd always really loved history and storytelling. So let me try that. So I applied for and got the same scholarship. And then after nine months at the Monitor, I decided to leave and go do this master's in the UK. Oh, wow. That's quite a departure. So how long did that last for? And obviously, you're back in journalism now. Um, so it didn't take, yeah, I guess, just take me through the university and how you got back into journalism after that. So it was only a nine month degree. So it was quick. But it was a really, really nice experience in that way that school is after you've been out of school for a while, when you've had the experience of sitting all day at a desk, doing a nine to five job, then to go back to this, what then feels like incredible free freedom of being in class a couple hours a day, learning about a subject that really interests you, and then spending the rest of the time reading and writing and thinking deeply about that subject. It was just such a pleasure as an experience. But I also did see that academia itself felt maybe both a little bit too slow paced for me, and also a little bit inaccessible. The kind of writing I'd always really loved to do was the kind that people would want to read. And it seemed like there are obviously academics who write in a very accessible way, but they're going against the grain. They're not rewarded for that. So I sort of felt like, okay, maybe that's not quite what I want either. But then at the time, I was poking around thinking, well, then what do I want to do next? And it seemed like, okay, I'm pretty good at applying for fellowships and scholarships, it seems like. So I'd, I had heard about this program called The Loose, which is this really wild fellowship where the purpose of it is to send emerging leaders in different professional fields who have no experience in East Asia to East Asia for a year, and they place them in a job or internship in their field. So across a wide variety of fields, there's journalists, but there's people working in public health. There was a woman who interviewed with me who was a chef, lawyers, human rights activists, all kinds of people. And they just place you in a country in East Asia in your field and support you for a year to do that. So I actually got this fellowship and was told I was going to be placed at the South China Morning Post as a reporter and was gearing up to do that. And in the midst of gearing up to do that, I went back to Johannesburg to do some research for my master's thesis, which was about the history of the tallest apartment building in Africa, which is in downtown Johannesburg. And just in the six weeks that I spent in Johannesburg, I just had this crisis of confidence about this amazing fellowship I got. And I realized I don't actually want to move to my fourth country in four years, start over in a place where I'll essentially be dead weight in a newsroom because I don't speak the language. I don't have a great knowledge of the culture, history, politics, etc. I would much rather dig in deeper to a place that I love, a place I'm really compelled by, a place I have friends. And I also did think I want to give this foreign reporting thing a chance. And the way it seemed to me to give myself the best chance of success was to go to a place I knew a little bit about. So when I got there on day one, I could start pitching and reporting stories and I wouldn't be in over my head from the beginning. So I just made this really kind of last minute pivot. The research component was at the very end of my master's, maybe seven months in or something. I'd already accepted this fellowship. I went back and told them, no, I'm actually not going to take it. And then when I finished my master's, I just bought a one-way ticket to Johannesburg and moved to South Africa. And I thought, I'm just going to see if I can make freelance journalism work. I've wanted for some time now to try being a foreign correspondent. This is a place I'm interested in. Let me just give it six months. Let me see how it goes. And if it goes well, maybe I'll stay. So I just took that leap of faith. 
and bought my ticket. Crazy. I know the Loose Fellowship. It's one of those things I'd heard about, but I went and studied abroad in China my junior year. And so it was like the prerequisite is that you've never been there, which is a crazy prerequisite. It's a crazy um, prerequisite. It's such a str- like, no, again, like, I mean, it's an amazing fellowship, but it's such an odd set of criteria, particularly in the 21st century when people do study abroad and travel so much. I think probably like in an earlier era, it was easier to make the case that, oh, there's like an emerging generation of American leaders who need to know about East Asia and would have otherwise no way of being exposed to it. Now that concept, I think, seems a little more wobbly, but it's still a super cool fellowship for anybody listening who might be looking at a way to go to a new part of the world. It's a very, very cool program. It would have been in Hong Kong with South China Morning Post? Yep. Interesting. But yeah, wow, that's a gutsy move. But I get what you mean. Going in without knowing a country is extremely difficult, I would say. Even having studied abroad my junior year in China, I went back with this idea I would freelance. And it was much more difficult than I had realized, I think, like, or it takes much longer to get up and running. And I ended up taking a job, luckily, and being able to make it work. But even when you do know what you're doing a little bit or have a toehold, it can be tough. So how how did you find things when you got to South Africa? Did you immediately already know some editors, know some publications you could write for? How did you go about getting started? Well, I basically had my tenuous foothold with the monitor. You know, I had editors there who I knew would open my emails, which for anyone who's freelanced is half the battle. And so in the beginning, I started to pitch them. What I realized was I had moved back to South Africa because South Africa itself was really compelling to me. And I was really interested in the place. I hadn't really given a lot of thought to what kind of place it was to be a foreign journalist. It turned out to be quite advantageous, though, because the kind of place that South Africa is to be a foreign journalist is, somewhat to my surprise, I learned when I got there, it's sort of a plush, like, late career posting for a lot of outlets, because it is a place that has both proximity to places in Africa that generate a lot of news, while also being very, very livable on a journalist salary in a way that the standard of living here you can have on a journalist salary is much higher than in the U.S. You can send your kids to private schools. You can have a full-time nanny. You can have a housekeeper. So when I got to my first Foreign Correspondents Association gigs, I just looked around and realized there were all these very, very well-established journalists in their 40s and 50s who had been all over the world and had come to South Africa as a final or late career almost reward posting for having been in these harder places. And so I hadn't realized that I, at 25, was just blithely dropping myself into this place that a lot of people were seeing as like a sought-after posting that you got at the end of your career. But the nice thing about that was there were a lot of outlets that had a correspondent in South Africa, which I think discouraged maybe there's not the same culture of young freelancers living in South Africa as there is in, say, Nairobi. So there were a lot of correspondents, but then there weren't a ton of freelancers. And so for publications that didn't have a correspondent in South Africa, it was relatively easy to start pitching American outlets. I mean, I think South Africa has a kind of cachet. I learned that you open all your pitches with, you know, sort of 25 years after Nelson Mandela walked out of prison and the end of apartheid, blah, 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 blah. That frame (laughs) is really compelling to people like globally. South Africa is this shining star example or it's seen that way of a country that emerged from this really violent, brutal history in a peaceful way and has remade itself in the last generation. And so I found that that was enough to get the attention of a lot of editors. It wasn't 
I don't want to say any place is obscure because like obscure to who, but from the perspective of American and European editors, South Africa was a place that interested them and that they thought their readers would be interested in. So relatively quickly, then I started to pick up freelance assignments from other publications too. But you know, like in the beginning, it was very much that every story paid $100, $200, $300. And I was just trying to scrape together enough of them in a month to make things work. And there was no stability. And if one person paid me late, it was always like a drama with the bank account and stuff like that. So it was definitely wobbly at the beginning. But South Africa is a relatively affordable place to live. And like I said, I was finding that editors did have an interest in it. So it was easier than it might have been in some other places to get started there. And what sort of publications were you working for other than Christian Science Monitor? You know, I was just tossing out ideas to editors everywhere and at all kinds of general interest news publications and just seeing what would stick. So I would write very occasionally for a lot of different places like The Washington Post, U.S. News and World Report, Al Jazeera, kind of dabbling in a little bit of more specific places too. Like I did a feature once for Runner's World. So just all kinds of places. And I mean, I really think that is obviously a great advantage of freelancing is you're not bound by the editorial sensibilities of any one publication. If you have the idea and you're committed to writing it, the only barrier, and it can sometimes be a big barrier, is finding an outlet that it will work for. But I had like a lot of fun with that because the other thing is in South Africa, the press here is really vibrant. It's largely in English or a lot of it is in English. So I could freelance also for South African publications. It never came to a point where I just got so tired of trying to do that thing you have to do in every international news pitch where you beg them to care, (laughs) where you make the case for why anyone in the United States should want to know about this thing happening on the other side of the world. When I got too exhausted of doing that, I would go and pitch the story to a South African newspaper and write it for them instead. So that was fun too. I had my finger in a lot of pots. Cool. And to be in your 20s and go from applying to 50 plus places, which I think a lot of us have been in that situation and barely hear back from any to only a few years later getting published in the Washington Post and these big newspapers and other publications. That's a pretty incredible come up, I guess I would say. So that's great that it worked out, even though I know behind the big publication bylines, often you're not getting paid that much. It's kind of hard to string things together. I've never been a full-time freelancer. A couple times I did it when I was a student for a year and things like that. When I took a year off to study Chinese, Basically, when I stopped being a freelancer each time, I was only then just finally after a year getting to the point where I could probably do this. I could probably do this and not starve to death. But I remember in the year I did it or whatever, like a couple of times I had to borrow money from friends and things like that. It was tough. But uh, it, it, it is tough. And, you know, and I think like one thing people do not talk about enough is the I wouldn't say the privilege needed to do it because certainly I've known freelancers who make it work without privilege but just to be clear about it I went in with no student debt I wasn't supporting parents or other family members and my dad gave me a couple thousand dollars to buy a car all of those things put me way ahead of anyone who has any kind of need for financial stability, where they're going to have to pay a loan payment every month, they're going to have to send their parents this much money every month, and sort of gave me the ability to not make that much, and it was going to be okay, or payments could come in late, and it was going to be okay. And I also had that in the back of my mind knowledge that if I needed to, I could always buy a plane ticket home and go stay with my parents until I could find another job that was always going to be an option for me. 
And I remember at the time when I started freelancing, I would just look at other freelancers and I would just wonder like, how is this working? You'd see people getting these really big commissions, but for places that I knew did not pay very well, the websites of these big magazines like The Atlantic or Harper's New Yorker, and just writing these like beautiful, intricate, heavily reported pieces that I knew were paying them like $300 or something. You just wonder, how are people doing it? And people are doing it in all kinds of ways from all kinds of privilege, whether it's that they have a spouse or partner who they can get health insurance from or who can pay the rent every month, or they have some kind of non-journalism job invisibly supporting their reporting that they do, or they're like me and they just could wing it because they didn't have any kind of financial obligations holding them down. Yeah. I mean, freelancing is really, really tricky. Yeah. Tough needle to thread for sure. And how long were you strictly a freelancer? And also, I guess, at what point did you start looking further afield from South Africa? I know you've been based there, but I had seen you take trips out of South Africa to other countries sometimes. Yes, there were sort of two things happening in parallel. One was that initially when I arrived in South Africa, I was pitching the Christian Science Monitor and just writing stories for them at $300 a pop. And eventually after a year or two of that, they brought me onto a contract where I had a retainer and a slightly higher story rate. And so then I had that stability and then they would occasionally send me on trips as well. And then I also just started applying left and right for reporting fellowships and got connected with this organization called the International Women's Media Foundation, who I ended up going on several group reporting trips with in East Africa, which was really, really amazing for me because, of course, another component of freelancing that you know, having done it is it's quite lonely. And it's quite like you're never really sure if you're doing it right, because aside from the feedback you get from an editor on an individual story who you might never talk to again, there's not a lot of clear signposts that like, yes, you're getting better or yes, you're advancing or yes, you have the necessary skills to do this. So going on those group reporting trips and just seeing how other people report, what it looks like, how they ask questions, how they approach people, what kind of stories they're writing. That was a really profound experience for me too. And then also started taking me to other countries in the region. And I started learning a bit more about doing that kind of reporting in a place that you're not living, which of course offers its own whole set of challenges. And yeah, I've talked to a few people, I think, who have done fellowships with IWMF. Yeah. And that's how you know Elaine Franchinot? Yeah, that that's right? right. Yeah. I went on a reporting trip with her to Uganda, which was wild. We were in like a rural part of Uganda and we stopped at a little grocery store and it was run by a Chinese family. And she just started speaking to them in Chinese. They didn't really speak very good English, but to get their story of how they had ended up in northern Uganda, which was just such a cool intersection of her reporting interests and talents to see. She had come to do this story about poaching in East Africa, but obviously had come from reporting in China. Chinese in Africa. I find extremely interesting, and it's just very difficult. Not a lot of institutions are willing to pay people who speak Chinese and maybe have never been to Africa to go out to these like far-flung places. And yeah, I find that it's often these fellowships or grants that get people out there doing that, I think. Yeah, absolutely. You know and the, the IWMF was really unique just generally. Their whole mandate was that they were searching for new and different narratives about that part of Africa. And so they would never take somebody who wanted to report on war or poverty or famine or corruption or sort of any of the typical storylines that you tend to see in Western media about 
Africa. Of course, a lot of us were, report on things adjacent to those subjects, but it was very much about finding people like her who wanted to come in, bring reporting skills that could tell different kinds of stories about that region. So does that lead to other opportunities or do you stay with the CSM this whole time? So I was still doing a lot of freelancing, dabbling in different things, doing a bit of magazine writing. Like I said, I did this long feature for Runner's World about the largest ultra marathon in the world, which is in South Africa. I did a radio documentary for a podcast called 99% Invisible, which was again about the tallest apartment building in Africa, which I had done my master's thesis on. I was sort of dabbling in different things. And then in the Mm -hmm. midst of it all, the Christian Science Monitor offered me a full-time job. Historically, they had had a bureau in South Africa, which they had closed, I believe, in 2009 and had relied on freelancers in the region since. But because I had been writing for them a lot the past few years there, I was already there. They wouldn't need to move me there or anything. I think they saw an opportunity to reopen that bureau in a relatively cheap way because I was already based there. And so they offered me this job as a correspondent. That was about three years ago now. Cool. And maybe that's a good spot to talk about the Christian Science Monitor. So I think a lot of people, they hear the name, they think it's some sort of Christian publication. I understand it's affiliated with Christian scientism or whatever it's called, the religion. You can probably tell me more. But my understanding, I knew the Christian Science Monitor correspondent in Beijing, so have talked to him a fair bit, is basically they print something on the back page, some writing by the founder of this religion. But other than that, it's basically run independently from any sort of religious influence. It's just the name of the thing. I guess, could you just explain a little bit about what is the deal with that for people who might not be familiar with it? Yeah, absolutely. It is not, first of all, the newsletter of Scientology, which I was not long ago, I was at a protest (laughs) interviewing someone. And at the end of the interview, she was like, what publication did you say you write for again? Christian Science Matter. Oh, no, you cannot quote me. That sounds like it is the newsletter of Scientology, which had long been my fear that I'm calling people up or writing people asking for interviews and they think that I'm affiliated with Scientology. So first of all, Christian Science is not Scientology. But the Christian Science Monitor is a nonprofit newsroom under the auspices of the Christian Science Church, which is a small denomination of Christianity started by this woman named Mary Baker Eddy in the early 20th century. And she also founded a newspaper alongside the church. So the church has always given financial support to this newspaper. And historically, a lot of members of the staff also have been Christian scientists, but the paper itself is a secular newspaper. It has a couple of sort of funny restrictions on content linked to Christian science, but they're not sort of religious restrictions. But just for instance, the founder of the Christian Science Monitor and the Christian Science Church said that she did not want the alcohol and tobacco industries written about. She did not want those vices glorified or given airspace and attention in the news. We don't write about the tobacco or alcohol industries. So there's some funny little quirks like that, but it is largely a fairly straightforward news publication. I would say the other difference between the Christian Science Monitor and, say, other newspapers is that it's never had a local audience. It's never been like a Boston newspaper. It's always been a newspaper that went out around the country and around the world. And so for that reason, they have always tried to, even when it was a daily print product, write stories that would hold up like the second or third day after the news happened, because maybe that was when people were going to receive their print paper in the mail. So it's not a paper that focuses on breaking news. It tends to be more 
news analysis or feature stories across the board in both its international and its domestic coverage, which is actually like a real privilege as a place to write because it means that I don't have to do the really high stress kind of work that people like you do, which is really, really amazing and hard to actually do that initial fact gathering. And I can kind of wait and step back and say, okay, what do I want to do next? What's the story I want to do about the lives of four people during the coronavirus pandemic in South Africa or whatever it might be? But yeah, that is the Christian Science Monitor in a nutshell. I never knew I would spend so much of my adult life explaining to people what Christian science is. I guess this would not have happened (laughs) to me if I had taken the job at the Casper newspaper. Right. But yeah, they're very famous for, I would say, internationally focused feature writing, especially maybe that, that lack of home base readership or something made them put more of their efforts abroad, historically at least. They're just like the amount of space in it given to not the U.S. is just so much more than a lot of publications at least used to be, probably still are given layoffs in bureaus around the world. Although I know that Christian Science Monitor is affected by that as well. So the next part is about stories. And I usually like to start by asking, what is a story that got away? Because it's better to finish on a story you're proud of. If any story comes to mind where you wanted to do it, but you couldn't for whatever reason, you either couldn't sell an editor on it, you couldn't prove it, you couldn't get the key source to talk to you, a reporting trip went horribly wrong, whatever reason, really. Does anything come to mind? So, you know, I'm constantly, I'm sure like lots of us are doing this, just keeping a Word document, just jotting down things I think might be an interesting story. It's a sort of an aside in somebody else's story or somebody just mentions it in conversation. And maybe five or six years ago, I read this little news item that said that the Eritrean national soccer team had come to do a soccer tournament or a friendly or something in Botswana. And the entire team had defected and decided to stay in Botswana. There's a wider, quite interesting narrative arc here. I mean, Eritrea is this incredibly closed society on the level of North Korea, and similar to North Korea, really, really hard to get out of. They have indefinite military conscription, and so people have to hatch these really dramatic ways to escape. And historically, a way that a lot of people have escaped is they've gotten onto a national sports team, and the national sports team has gone somewhere for a tournament, and then the whole team of whatever sport it is just defects and mess. And this has happened like many times to the point where I think now in Eritrea they basically like threaten their families or something like that. They make it so it's harder for people to then leave. But anyway, there was this thing where every couple of years you'd hear about an Eritrean sports team. They got to another country and then all just said, no, we're not going back. But I was really struck by this example in Botswana because Botswana is a really hard place to be a refugee. It's not a place where you can, as a refugee, like live in cities or just get a job. You have to go live in a refugee camp. And there are very Mm -hmm. few refugee camps in Botswana and they're in very rural, very remote parts of the country. And they're just not very nice. And so I thought, this is a really odd, striking story of these men who decided it was better to live in a refugee camp, maybe for the rest of their lives, in a refugee camp in a very remote corner of Botswana than go back to Eritrea. And I just had it in my head. I'm like, this is an interesting story. I think it would be a cool narrative. I don't really know how to sell it. At the time, I wasn't that experienced of a reporter. I didn't know what kind of place might take a story like that. I wasn't really sure how I would get there or would I need a translator, you know, any of these questions. So I just sort of had it in the back of my head. I'd like to do this. I'd like to do this. And one day I opened the New Yorker 
And there's a story in The New Yorker about this. A very excellent New Yorker staff writer named Alexis Okewo had done the story. I don't know her, so I, to this day, I don't know how she found out about the story or did it. But that was really like a wake-up call to me, that these things that you think, like, only I know about this. Only I'm considering this story. I have kind of forever to just sit on it and figure out how I might do it. And then one day you wake up and it's in The New Yorker and it's gone. So I still think about that one. But that was definitely, in retrospect, a very cool, interesting story that got away to The New Yorker. Wow. I guess I have heard occasionally Eritrea gets compared to North Korea, but it sounds very much like that. And I certainly know the feeling of waking up, looking at a publication and seeing a story you either were working on or had the idea for and just never did it and has a way of sticking with you. And then, yeah, let's next talk about a story you're proud of. If you can pick a story you've done at any point in your career, really, it doesn't have to be that recent that you're proud of. And just tell us a little bit about it and how you went about reporting and writing it. So I did a story actually just last year, but that I've been thinking a lot about now in the current context. And it was about the Ebola outbreak in eastern Congo. But it was a profile of a Cameroonian anthropologist working for the WHO, whose job was basically just to figure out why did people not follow the rules to stop them from getting sick? What was going on? Why were people continuing to have funerals? Why were people continuing to take care of sick people and their families in their house and not go to Ebola treatment centers? What was going on? And basically what it came down to is the response was just coming in with this kind of one-size-fits-all approach. These are the rules of the disease. This is how you get it. This is how you stop people from getting it. You can't let anyone have a funeral. You can't let people have gatherings. And they just weren't at all culturally sensitive. And so people were ignoring them because people were thinking, you're coming in with your rules, but you're not listening to our rules. And our rules say, if we don't bury this person, then they don't go to the afterlife, whatever it is. And so her job was to go into these communities and basically find out what was going wrong and then not teach the communities how to be different, but teach the World Health Organization how to treat people better during a pandemic, during a disease outbreak. And so it was a story I really liked doing because I felt like it was a story that told about a disease outbreak in Africa in a different way than I have often heard them discussed. First of all, the sort of agent of change, the person making change was this African woman anthropologist. Second of all, it was about not these backwards Africans who just don't understand science doing something wrong. It was about actually what the World Health Organization was doing wrong and how the people with the cultural know-how and wisdom who needed to be listened to were actually these people who were being often stereotyped in the media as backwards and ignorant and didn't know what they needed to do to stop themselves from getting Ebola. And then the woman herself was just incredibly vibrant and interesting. And I just got to follow her around the Eastern Congo doing her work. It's sort of one of those pinch me moments that we all have as reporters where you're like, I cannot believe this is my job that I'm getting paid to do. Here I am in this lush rainforest in the middle of Eastern Congo in this village, listening to this woman talk to these families about how they bury people and stuff. And so that was just really, really cool. And I've just been thinking about that story and its broader relevance a lot now, because of course, now we, the whole world, are having to contend with people giving us rules on how to keep ourselves safe that feel unfair or feel unduly restrictive or feel like they don't really understand us and our culture and our society and what we need as people. And so suddenly I feel like this knowledge and wisdom of this woman during this African disease outbreak is really applicable to the world now, right? Yeah. It's strange how 
the way Ebola was written about and kind of getting pigeonholed in a certain way. And I don't even know if the last outbreak that that people were that interested globally. And now Ooh. another guest recommended a piece I'm trying to remember the name of it, like handshakes and other indignities in the time of Ebola. And now it seems incredibly like prescient and relevant. And like at the time, it was kind of nobody was really paying that much attention. What you said, you know, it has echoes here in Brazil of three children, babies died from coronavirus indigenous. And in this tribe, they're supposed to burn the bodies. But instead, the mothers were never allowed to see them and they were buried. And yeah, it's crazy how many similarities I would say there between the, the, the two things. I mean, obviously, coronavirus is much more global and Ebola, I don't think, made it out of Africa. But at what point in the Ebola outbreak was it? Like, was you getting Ebola at all a concern for you or was it past that point? I would say it was past the peak, but it was not yet near over. It would carry on for several months after that. The big difference between covering a disease like Ebola and covering things in the time of coronavirus is Ebola is very, very deadly if you get it, but it actually, it's relatively straightforward to not get it. The people who tend to get it tend to be family members of people who have it or healthcare workers because you get it from the bodily fluids of somebody who's visibly ill. So only when people show symptoms are they contagious or after they die. So as a journalist, it's fairly straightforward to avoid spending too much time in health settings, spending time with people who are sick and just sort of following basic hygiene. It's not like coronavirus that seems to like lurk, no one even knows where, in the air, on the, all the doorknobs. So it was actually from that perspective, a lot more straightforward. There were quite clear rules. Do this, don't do this, and you can stay pretty safe. So I actually felt a lot less nervous from a health perspective during reporting then than I do now going out with my N95 mask with another mask on top of it, trying to talk to people through my many layered barrier, hoping they're reading the emotion in my eyes the way that I want it to be read and things like that. So did you lead off the story, I imagine, with an anecdote of her, the anthropologist, talking to one of these communities in particular? The week that I was there, she had gone to a community that was resisting allowing vaccine teams in. They were saying they didn't want to be vaccinated against Ebola because, of course, in this last Ebola outbreak, there was actually a vaccine. And the reason they were saying is because somebody had died in their community. They had dug a grave for this person, and then they were not allowed to bury the person in the grave. The person was buried in an Ebola cemetery a couple hours drive away. And it was considered very, very bad luck in this community to dig a grave and then not put a body in it. And so the community decided, look, they want to come in and tell us their rules and what we must do. But we've told them our rules. We needed to bury this person here and they didn't follow or listen to us. So why should we listen to them? So that was the opening. And then her having to navigate between those two worlds. And in the end, what she ends up doing is finding out that in this culture, there's a ceremony that you can do to close a grave without a person in it. You do this symbolic burial of a banana leaf and a whole ceremony around it. And so she basically gets the WHO to give her a budget to go out and buy beer for the funeral ceremony and food. And then there's like some things you put in the grave for the person to take with them. And so those things, you know, so she had this WHO budget line of buying like beer and soap and bananas for this community, but so that they could do this ceremony, see then that the Ebola response respected their culture and their beliefs. And then they were willing to say, okay, well, then we can let them in and listen to their rules as well. 
Yeah, that sounds like a great story. In many ways, subverts a lot of the Africa tropes, like you mentioned. So that's very cool. Um, and I guess just out of idle curiosity, I can't. Normally, we I only try to talk about one story because of time, but I couldn't help but be curious a little bit about your feature on the ultra marathon. If you could just say a few words about that and how you ended up writing that for Runner's World. Yeah, sure. So there is this ultra marathon in South Africa every June called the Comrades, and 20,000 people run it every year, and it is 56 miles, 90 kilometers. But 20,000 people is like the size of a city marathon in the U.S. or somewhere else. And it very much has that vibe. The people who run it are not these wiry, like super obsessive, long distance runners of the type you might think run ultra marathons in places like the U.S. It's like your mechanic, your housekeeper, just everybody in South Africa knows people who have run this because running it is like the equivalent of in the U.S. running the New York Marathon or the Chicago Marathon or something. It's just something that non-athletic people might one day wake up and say, I want to do this challenge in my life. Next year, I'm going to run this 56-mile, 90-kilometer ultra marathon. And it has that vibe to the race, like all the way through. There's just spectators all the way along the course. Black spectators, white spectators. It's this very inclusive, democratic, lovely snippet in time for South Africa every year. And so when I saw this, I was like, how the hell did this become a thing? How the fuck did it become a thing that 20,000 people in this country every year want to run an ultra marathon for fun? 20,000 quote-unquote normal people, that is to say, not super unusually athletic people. And so I started digging into what the history of this race was and found out that basically it's been going for like a century, but it was always a very, very small race. And until the mid-70s, only white men were allowed to run it, which is a history that tracks with the history of marathons in places like the U.S. as well, right? That women weren't allowed to run until the 60s or 70s because there were these fears Mm -hmm. that like their uterus would fall out or whatever. Um, so there was sort of something similar going on in South Africa and it was just this little foot race. And then it really was this quirky thing that maybe like a few super athletic guys did every year. It's between these two cities in South Africa, Durban and Peter Maritzburg. But then what happened was in the sixties and seventies, South Africa starts getting barred from competing in international sports because of apartheid. So it can no longer compete in the Olympics. It can't compete in the world cup. It can't compete in the rugby world cup. And South Africans are sports mad. They are sports crazy. And so they just do not know what to do with themselves. And so they throw themselves into these local sports and local leagues. And a lot of those became super, super popular because there was no international competition South Africa could participate in. Then at the same time, South Africa only gets TV in the mid-1970s. And the mid-1970s brings on its first public TV station, and it needs content. So they start throwing all these random sports onto this TV channel. And one that they start televising is this ultra marathon. And so this ultra marathon starts growing in popularity around the same time it desegregates, it allows women. And so all this momentum just builds around it and it just turns into this massive national sporting event that everyone knows about that even now, lots of people on the day that the comrades is on will just watch it all day long on TV the time cutoff is 12 hours, so they'll just put the TV on from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. and just watch people run it. And so it is just like very much this national phenomenon, but with this odd history that tracks with the history of South Africa and apartheid and sport. And so that story that I did followed a woman who was running the Comrades for the first time, who was a housekeeper. And I chose her because 
something that I was very intrigued by is I think another stereotype about ultra marathons is that they're for really well resourced people because how the hell else would you have time to train running 10 or 20 miles on a random weekday for a race like this and going through all these running shoes and don't you need all these goo gels and sports drinks and all this stuff. Uh, It just very much seems like maybe a sport of the elite. And in South Africa, it's really not at all. And so I was also curious about how that worked, practically speaking. So I followed this woman through her training and her training was essentially, she would run from the informal settlement where she lived about six miles to the house where she worked as a housekeeper. And then she would run home and she would do that every day. And then on the weekends, she would run a marathon somewhere around. And so I followed her through a training cycle and it was really, really fun. I'm a very, very slow runner, but the good thing about people training for ultra marathons is they also tend to run very, very slowly because they're preparing to do this for like 12 hours. So I would go on runs with her sometimes and I just see the geography of the different South Africas that she would run through, the settlement where she lived that was quite impoverished through to this really wealthy neighborhood where she worked. And then I just followed her on the day of, which was, of course, very nerve-wracking because I wondered if she would finish, um, what the story would be if she didn't. But she ended up coming in about 10 minutes under the 12-hour cutoff. And it ended up being this just quite lovely story of this race and this woman and this way in which this race embodied, for people like her, it was a way to be something bigger than your life circumstances were supposed to let you be, to do this incredible athletic feat, even as somebody who just works for a couple hundred dollars a month as a housekeeper, but you too could do this really like on the edge of possible athletic feat. Yeah, so that was that story. And I've, I've had a very strong interest ever since in that ultra marathon, and I'm always looking for new ways to write about it. So then the following year, I ended up writing a story about the woman who paces the very slowest group of runners, so the people trying to finish in 12 hours. And then I wrote another piece last year about a guy who was doing the race for charity, raising money for libraries in poor areas, and he read as he ran. I don't know how much he actually was seeing on the page, but he would hold a book in front of him and like allegedly like read it as he ran. So it's just a very, very interesting race with a lot of very cool, interesting narrative threads in it to tug at. Yeah. Wow. That's fascinating. Like the whole history of it and, you know, coming from apartheid and like how that made it into a big thing. But now it's turned into something else, uh, you know, an inclusive thing that anybody can do. That's really cool. So uh, the next part is the lightning round. I guess just before that, was there anything else in terms of biography or anything? Yeah, I kind of think, I mean, I guess there's obviously a lot of important ethical questions around being a Westerner reporting in Africa. I suppose the overarching question is, what right do we have to be here when we come from places generally and institutions specifically that have done so much damage to Africans and to the perception of Africa globally. So that's something I think about a lot, a lot in the work I do. And I don't know that I have good answers to it, but it's just like something I try to never be comfortable on. I try to never feel like uh, I have earned the right to be here. I feel like I have to re-earn it with every story that I do. And more broadly, even what stories I'm doing or what narratives I'm choosing, it's also about how am I treating local journalists that I work with, crediting them, trying to help find opportunities for them in international journalism. Who am I quoting? Am I quoting experts at think tanks in D.C. about Africa or people who actually work at universities on the continent? 
I'm curious, actually, if it's something similar in Latin America. There's quite like a reckoning in Africa. And I know you and Lindsay talked about it a little bit, but over who has the right to tell these stories and how do we tell them in a way that's fair and that's different than people who look like us who have come before us? Yeah, I would say it's not scrutinized the same way in Latin America for whatever reason. I think maybe just because there are so many white South Americans, which people Mm -hmm. in the U.S., I think, kind of fundamentally misunderstand that, like, these other countries, yes, they speak other languages, but they're fundamentally multicultural, multi-ethnic, like the U.S., there was the white upper class in Brazil who were slave owners. And so it's very much like the U.S. in that sense. And I think in Brazil in particular, it's extremely problematic in Brazilian media, too. Like the media is extremely white in a country that is very not white. So it's... Uh... Yeah, and it's, I mean, it is interesting because I feel like I've been waiting for this wave to crash, that the media in the U.S. was deservedly, was so scrutinized in the wake of Black Lives Matter for its lack of diversity or for its lack of thoughtful coverage of communities of color in the United States. And I just kept waiting for it to sort of turn on, well, and look at all these like white foreign correspondents in Latin America or Africa or Asia or whatever. And I don't know if it's just because there was too much else going on, but it never quite pivoted there. And I was almost sort of hoping for it too, because I think forcing those conversations out in the open and actually forcing our bosses to have to deal with it because people are demanding it of them would probably be a good thing. But anyway, I suppose we were spared for a little while longer. Anyway, yeah. In terms of that was a very interesting conversation with Lindsay about how it works in Africa. And she sounded a little bit hopeful that it's getting a little bit better, but it's still obviously a problem. I do think it's getting better. I think there's an increasing awareness in big Western media companies that have correspondents here that it would bring value, it would bring richness and depth to their coverage to have African reporters cover Africa. So you now see that now the New York Times, for instance, which has three reporters in sub-Saharan Africa, two of them are African. The Guardian's West Africa correspondent is African. So you're starting to see some big media brands seeing the value of that, which I think is good because I think it feeds into a bigger conversation about what makes good foreign correspondence. This, you know, historically, the ethos has always been, oh, you send somebody who knows your publication's style and what it needs to a place that they know nothing about. And if they're a smart journalist, they'll figure it out. They'll learn the language. They'll become a good correspondent there and they'll use their outsider status to see other things versus now. I think there's a lot more conversation around would it be better to have people who have actually deep cultural, linguistic, regional expertise covering those places. And maybe the muscle that needs to be developed is not the muscle of learning the basic information about the place, but the muscle of learning how to write about those places for people who don't know much about them, because that can be a little difficult if it's somewhere you know well, whether it's because you're from there or you've lived there a long time or whatever it is. But I'm glad to see those conversations starting to happen and that starting to, I think, change a little bit the way foreign correspondence is done. I mean, I think we still have a long, long way to go. We've been having conversations in my newsroom recently about how we credit fixers, so local journalists we work with. And there's quite a lot of people on the desk who have said, you know, we don't credit fixers. There are assistants that we bring in. We have a story idea and we send them out to do quote unquote rote reporting of just calling people up and translating. And the story is still at its core, mine, the foreign correspondence, to sort of start to have conversations about, well, what kind of power dynamic does that 
reinforce? Does that maybe then slam the door in the face of those local journalists who might have ambitions to write for foreign media themselves? Yes, I think there is a long way to go. And I don't know what the answers are, but I'm glad to see some of those conversations starting to happen. It is just the beginning, though. I guess I would say the one very positive thing about Reuters is the fact that it seems to be one of a few singular places where I feel like it's very inclusive for non-native English speakers and the fact that Hmm. you can really have a future in Reuters, even if you're not a native English speaker. If you can get to a certain level, the the supremacy is always placed on reporting and not writing. So in the cases of hiring a fixer or an assistant, whoever is in the field doing the reporting gets the byline. I can be in the office, I'll get a writing credit at the bottom, but it's like whoever got the information that's at the top of the story, their name goes on top no matter what. It doesn't matter if they're more junior and there isn't this kind of star correspondent type thing who gets to swoop in and, you know, take all the credit for other people's work. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think that's that's good and that's positive. That said, yeah, probably more the people they're putting on the front lines should be black. Definitely. So yeah, the next part is the lightning round. It's more fast paced questions. Feel free to answer at whatever length you like. Do you feel ready? Yeah, sure. Let's do it. What is a must-read publication that you look at almost every day? I have quite boring standard answers to this. I always look at the Washington Post, New York Times, Al Jazeera. There's a lot of great newspapers in South Africa. So there's a really good one called The Mail and Guardian, which covers both South Africa and Africa in general. So those are probably the ones that I check every single morning just to see what's going on or look at their Twitter feeds. And then what is a publication you read, listen to, or watch for fun? So I listen to a lot of podcasts. There's a podcast I really love called By the Book, and it's these two women, and they just review self-help books. But the way that they review them is they live by the dictates of the self-help book for two weeks, and they're very (laughs) irreverent and funny. They take it seriously, but they don't take themselves too seriously. So if it's something they really hate, then they tell you they really hate it. But it's just fun and entertaining and also in its own way a bit profound because self-help and people searching for meaning and purpose in their life is profound in a way, but with this overlay of humor and entertainment. So it's a really fun one to listen to just hear something completely different than journalism. What's the name of it? Just one more time. It's called By the Book. And then what's the best journalistic article, piece, again, whatever medium that you've consumed recently? So I read about a month ago this Washington Post piece that I just have not been able to stop thinking about, which was the story of the journey of a hamburger, like a takeout hamburger from an expensive D.C. restaurant during the pandemic. And it was just this incredibly narratively clever way of looking at the economics of the pandemic and how supply chains have been disrupted. But basically, the reporter, she zooms all the way out and goes back to the cattle farm and how those cattle farms have been affected by the pandemic, to the slaughterhouses with migrant workers, where, of course, lots of people have gotten sick, to the transport, to the restaurant industry, to the people delivering your food, who might be people who lost their jobs and now are casually working for Uber Eats or whatever, to the white collar people working from home who are still able to order expensive diner food. Anyway, so it just had all of these different layers of the pandemic experience. And I just thought that was such a narratively clever vehicle 
with which to look at all those people's experiences and this broader economic story, but through the story of an object through a hamburger. So she literally follows it from cow to this guy eating it in his apartment in D.C. That's the kind of story where, like, after four months of reading about this pandemic and thinking you've read everything about it, you sit up and say, like, okay, I just learned something new, read something new, was entertained and moved in a way that I haven't been. So I read stories like that and get both very jealous that I didn't write something like that and very motivated to tell the types of stories that would provoke that reaction in other people, too. Yeah, those types of stories are the best business reporting, I think. I love those supply chain stories that connect all the dots and make it a lot less abstract. These very complicated economic interactions from the farm to you putting it in your mouth. Did you say the name of it? Yeah, it might have just been called the $20 Hamburger or something like that. And the reporter was a woman named Jessica Contrera, who's a features reporter for The Washington Post. The next question is, how do you manage your work-life balance, or do you even believe in it? <laughs> you know, some some days, some weeks with more success than others. I think back in my previous life when I was traveling for stories, as we all used to do, when there's travel, there's no balance. It just is the work 24-7. When you're not explicitly doing interviews, you're just trying to soak up the place and the experience and either sort of take notes mentally or actually take notes on what's going on. And then there's absolutely zero balance. I have historically tried to keep relatively normal work hours so that I can keep a relatively normal social life. But of course, when you write and edit across time zones, that is sometimes easier said than done. So I would just say it is a work in progress, like for all of us. And then the next question is, is Twitter important to you? It's a tough question for me because I've sort of gone back and forth on it. When I try to tweet and build my Twitter following, it feels like a popularity contest that I have lost and continue to lose. So in that sense, I find Twitter frustrating. I don't find it a good vehicle to be a megaphone or amplify the things that I want to say or the stories that I write. But I do find it very useful for just listening to conversations that are going on, seeing what people are talking about, picking up on news items and things like that. So I would say I guess I'm more of a consumer of Twitter than really like a producer of the forum. I did want to ask you about one specific thing I saw on Twitter that you had tweeted they were tweeting about something that's been mansplained to you. And I wanted to ask about it because you said somebody had mansplained the plot of a book you had written to you, yeah. which I thought yeah. was a particularly unbelievable answer. But I'm sure that stuff happens all the time. But what piqued my curiosity was the fact that it implied you had written a book. And I was just curious about that. And I forgot to ask about it during the biographical part. That ended up being the eventual output of my very open-ended Fulbright project was to write a biography of this journalist whose life I had been studying, who was a guy named Nat Nakasa. And I published it with a really small South African publishing house. It was basically a step above self-publishing. There were only ever a thousand copies in the world. They didn't give me an advance or anything. The editing process was essentially I sent them a Word document and they sent it back with track changes that said you forgot a comma here and stuff like that. So it wasn't a super formal, like, you know, when people ask me about, oh, what's the process of getting a book published? Like, I can't say I really know because this was a very light version of it. But that was the book I wrote. And then I was at a book fair giving a talk about it. And the guy who was the moderator of the panel kept interrupting me to fill in the details on the story of my book, which I just thought was a very sort of classic of the genre of mansplanation. <laughs> yeah. 
Silly. That's very cool to have your research to get that platform, even if it's a small publisher. That's pretty amazing. And then if you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you would have their career, who would it be? I can think of a few people, but one who really stands out for me is Ellen Berry, who's a correspondent for the New York Times, who has lived in a few different places, I think most recently in India and in Russia. And in addition to the sort of normal news coverage, she does these just like incredible long form narrative pieces. And she's just an incredibly gifted writer and reporter. She did this one, the one that everybody read, I think it was either at the beginning of this year or the end of last year, about this quote unquote royal family living in this decaying palace in Delhi and sort of unravels the whole history of their family and what the story of that was. But she just writes so cinematically that every time I read a big piece of hers, I go back and read it five or 10 more times to study how the hell she did that, how the hell she wrote this piece of journalism in a way that feels so much like a film or a novel that you can't tear yourself away from. Because I think that's ultimately coming from somebody who grew up as a kid wanting to be a novelist and wanting to tell those kind of stories. I think I'm still striving for marrying those two parts of my interest in storytelling, the interest in journalistic storytelling with this interest in this, you dive into a world and you are completely absorbed by it type of storytelling. And I think she somehow finds a way to do both in a way that I just find incredible. So I would love to have her career. I would love to get inside of her head and just figure out how she does it. But yeah, she's a great, great reporter. What do you think you bring to the table that makes you a good journalist? My skill set definitely is towards the end of the spectrum of being good at sitting with people and listening to them and having conversations, which I know seems really basic, but that's just to say I'm not at the end of the spectrum where I'm good at asking really hard questions of people with a lot of power. I'm much better at sitting with the people upon whom power is enacted in whatever various ways and listening and being an empathetic ear and getting people to open up to me and talk to me and trust me with stories, which I think goes back to my rule being that you try to be a person before you're a journalist. You try to approach an interview like you would approach a conversation, give a little of yourself. If you want people to talk to you about sensitive things, show them that you too are a person. You too have maybe had experiences that run parallel to theirs or whatever it might be. So I think my skills are definitely in the listening, observing side of things. And I have a very good eye for detail, I think. So picking up on the setting and those kind of visual things that bring stories alive. What is one thing you wish you could travel back and tell your younger self? On a very practical level, I wish I could tell my younger self and all freelancers to negotiate their rates. I think I was very surprised a year or two into freelancing to discover that when you pitched a story, the publication said yes, and they came back to you and said, oh, we'd pay $300 for a story, that you didn't have to just say yes, that you could ask them for more money. I just think about the, all the sort of small indignities now of stories that in retrospect were really good stories that I wrote for $150, $250 because I didn't have the confidence or poise or just knowledge to know that you can ask for more money. And then like just back to what I was just saying now to tell like journalists starting out, you always want to get the best stories that are going to get you the best clips that are going to get in the best publications. But to just be a fucking human being with people, to not see them as 
subjects and characters, but to see them as other people and to think what would you want from yourself if you were in their circumstances in terms of how you would want to be treated, talked to, talked with, talked about. I think that's the kind of thing that can fall through the cracks of journalism education because it's not a practical rote, this is what a lead looks like, this is what a nut graph is, types of sources every story needs or whatever. But just to like have a heart is something that I think sometimes like a lot of us learn by making mistakes through practice. What is one thing that most people don't know about you? I can read in Cyrillic, but I no longer speak any Russian. So it's a very odd, sort of useless, just like residual bit of knowledge I have from being a kid living in a Russian-speaking country for a little while. Where did you live where they were Russian-speaking? When I was seven years old, my dad actually did a Fulbright himself as a professor. He's a law professor in Kazakhstan. We lived in what was then the capital of Kazakhstan, Almaty. Wow. I, I can't say I know anybody who's ever lived there. So that's pretty incredible. What is your favorite film, book, TV, or other media property about journalists and why? I suppose it's very much in the genre of this podcast, but I really love long form because I really love listening to journalists talk about their craft. And I love that very wonky stuff that's like inside the business. Because so often when I read a good story, I'm like, how the hell did this person report this? I just want to know what the process was. And I've been listening to a podcast recently also called The Writer's Co-op, which is about the business of freelance writing. But I found it a really useful one recently in terms of actually breaking down things like how do you make money as a freelancer? What's a reasonable amount of money to expect to make? How do you manage your finances, your taxes? Like this really nitty gritty stuff. I just like drawing the curtain back on those kinds of things and seeing what's behind the scenes. And then the final question is, qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? I think many journalists, in my low moments, I think I just want to do something that's objectively useful, right? Like to be a nurse or something where you know every single day you're helping save people's lives or on a slightly more abstract level, something like being like a human rights lawyer or an immigration lawyer or something like that, where your advocacy is actually directed towards changing something in a systemic way. Because I think that the hardest thing for me about journalism is that you are sort of this stenographer of the world as it is. I mean, we hope writ large that journalism steers and influences the path that society takes and influences decisions people make. But it's in this grand abstract sense. It's kind of rare that you have a story that you know changed something. So I feel like sometimes I wish to have a job like a lawyer where you kind of see the changes that you're making. And then sometimes I wish for something even more tactile. And actually, there was this person, they were sick, and then I helped them, and then they were no longer sick. Those are the sort of genres of jobs that journalism makes me long for at times. Okay, so that yeah, that's the last question. I'll just wrap up then by saying thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Ah, thank you for having me. It's nice to sort of think through a lot of these things out loud. And it's an interesting, helpful exercise for me, too. And I know, I mean, I'm not in any way well-known or anything, but people write to me sometimes and say, oh, how do you get started as a foreign correspondent? And what was your career trajectory like? So I know it's helpful to younger journalists coming up or considering this as a career path to hear how different people did it. And just from listening to your podcast, you know, I can see people's experiences are so different. So it's a very useful like library, I think, of interviews to have for those types of people. I'm sure you hear from those types of people too. Yeah, yeah. Those are probably most of the people I hear from are younger journalists. And I hope it's helpful to them. It seems to be 
just, yeah, when I was coming up, I didn't have many examples of how to do it. I studied abroad and then I kind of met some journalists while abroad and interned. And then I was like, oh, this is a thing I can do. This is how people have done it. And that really set everything in motion because otherwise this kind of abstract thing people say in journalism school, oh, I might like to be a foreign correspondent, but I feel like even most of the professors don't know how the hell to help you do that. Um, Totally. And especially people our age, right? It's helpful to hear how we did it because it's so different than 30 years ago. Oh, I started at a regional newspaper and then I got hired by a bigger regional newspaper and then I got hired by a national newspaper and then I moved to the foreign desk and then they sent me abroad. It used to be like this very clear career path to how you did this. And I think it's a lot blurrier now. And so people are really like, what am I supposed to do if I want to get on this track? Right. Yeah. And now I would say the biggest thing is just going someplace. You know, you can't wait to be sent, I would say, is a through line of a lot of these interviews. You can't wait for a publication to send you. You kind of just have to go figure it out. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Ryan Lenora Brown, Africa correspondent with the Christian Science Monitor. I'll post links to some of Ryan's work and other things we talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave a five-star rating. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you also write out a positive review saying what you like about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at at foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Makai Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, September 6th. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence. Foreign Correspondence.